Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, how grateful we are tonight that the author of the scriptures lives within us if we're born again. The very Spirit of God who inspired the writing of this letter to Pastor Titus lives within us and therefore can illuminate our understanding, can give us power to obey the truth herein, and can give us wisdom beyond ourselves. Lord, I thank you for each person who's here tonight and for each family that is represented. I pray that your blessing would be upon us as we look into your word together. And Lord, it is our prayer that we would not merely become smarter, but rather that we would become more like Christ. And so guide our time, we ask, for his glory alone. Amen. So what I'd like to do is uh, read Titus 1 through chapter 2, verse 10, and then um, just read it out popcorn style. If you would like to read a verse, just read it out in a big voice. And we're going to start at 1-1 and read through chapter 2, verse 10. So commence reading, please. This one verse one, this letter is from Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. I have been sent to bring forth great faith to those God has chosen, and to teach them to know the truth that shows them how to live godly lives. Thank you. Verse two. The oath of eternal life, which God cannot lie upon, all the ages ago. That the proper time manifested in His work, and the proclamation with which I have entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. Verse four. Titus, my true son, in the common faith, grace, peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ. Verse 5. I'm sorry, brother. Verse 5. Six. If a person is above reproach, the husband of one wife only, as the leading children who are not charged with being perfect or unruly. Seven. Now as the manager of God's household, so he must live a famous life. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. He must not be a heavy drinker, violent, or dishonest with money. Eight. And he must love what is good. He must live wisely and be just. He must live a devout and disciplined life. Nine. He the faithful word as he has been taught, and he may be able by sound doctrine both to exalt and convict those Ten.
15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. 16. To know God, by their actions they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. 2 1. To what? For you speak the things which are fitting for a sound doctrine. Two. That the age may be sober, brave, temperate, sound of faith, in charity and patience. Three. The age women likewise, that they be in behavior and become a holiness, not called securities, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. Four. That they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children. Five. To be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Six. Likewise, to be Seven. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. And your teachings show integrity, seriousness. Eight. He that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil things to say of you. Nine. And you were asked to be there. must not talk back. Okay, verse 10. Concern all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God as they did in all Thank you. By way of a really quick review, we saw in the first verses of uh, 1 through 12 of chapter 1 some things. We saw that uh, Titus was a young pastor on an island of Crete. He was young in chronological age, but he was experienced in discernment in theology and in pastoral practice. His biggest headache on Crete were um, Judaizers who were people who said you had to add to a faith in the finished work of Christ uh, Jewish compliance to the Jewish laws. And they were adding to God's grace and the finished work of Christ the necessity for Jewish dietary laws, Jewish Sabbath laws, etc. And so that was his biggest headache. We noticed last week that he identified, Paul identified himself as being a bond servant, that is, a voluntary, lifelong servant of the Master Jesus. Uh, and we called ourselves to ask the question are we bond servants or not? The normal Christian life living under the Lordship of Christ is to be a bondservant, a la Romans 12, 1 and 2. Uh, another takeaway from last time was that we really are to be doctrinal specialists. We shouldn't leave what the Bible teaches by way of doctrine to the pastors, as if they're somehow uh, uniquely the... Uh, uh, custodians of good doctrine. We are good custodians of doctrine, but you need to also be custodians of good doctrine where you are married, where you raise children, where you work, uh, and so forth and so on. Then we also took from last time that the only way to be a doctrinal specialist, a guardian of right teaching, is to have our nose in the book. 
uh, coming on Sunday mornings. We appreciate you worshiping God with us, but that's not enough. Coming on Sunday evenings as well as Sunday mornings, we appreciate worshiping with you, but that's not enough. We each have to have our noses in God's holy book Monday through Saturday, right? If we're going to be custodians of good doctrine, we have to know what good doctrine is. Then, take away from last time, demand godliness for yourself. In other words, um, good enough is not good enough. We ought not to have a standard for our Christian lives, well, I'm better than him, or I'm certainly better than her. The standard we should call ourselves to, that God calls us to, is the standard of his word and the character qualities of his son. And so we want to shoot high enough and not miss the mark. And one thing that we can do to really help us to be held to a standard of holiness, of Christ-likeness, is to have an accountability partner. If it's not our spouse, then someone of our same gender, that basically you can say to that person, here's what eats my lunch spiritually. These three things. I'd like you to ask me regularly, once a week, Tuesdays, how those three things are going in my life. And then tell the truth. When you're asked, tell the truth. And that's accountability. Also, still from uh, last week, I hope and ask that you would pray for me and the other pastors of our church, and other churches might be represented, your pastors, verses 6 to 9. The character qualities that are spelled out for an elder, pastor, teacher are verses 6 through 9 of chapter 1. And you want to know how to pray for me? Open your Bible to Titus chapter 1 and pray verses 6 through 9 for me. That's what every pastor uh, would appreciate, that you would pray for us, that we would, uh, by God's grace and for God's glory, live up to these um, qualifications. Um, the last takeaway from last week, um, basically the, the Cretans, and we didn't get to get into it too much, but the Cretans had false teachers, and these false teachers, it says, were disturbing whole families. That tells me that those families were cohesive. Now I'm afraid that if a false teacher spoke to someone in a family, it wouldn't spread anyway because they're all on their devices. Right? But we ought to be cohesive families. And, you know, maybe, not maybe, I, I would say we should make sure that we don't have devices at the dinner table, that we don't have devices at the restaurant, that we give full attention to our parents or to our children or grandchildren. And um, I just cite the Steve Lowe family because I've been privileged to be part of one of their uh, weekly family dinners, and I know many others of you have weekly family dinners with your families on the island. I think it's so great. But, you know, to be cohesive families, don't have devices when you're eating, and get together with a regular frequency where you can enjoy each other's company and, and just catch up on what's going on in your lives. So those are some of the takeaways from verses 1 to 12 of Titus 1. And now I want to go into the verses for this evening, which are 113 through, two, uh, through 210. And um, we're going to keep going here, but if someone could reread verse 13 in a big voice. The testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, 
Yeah, you would check it, check my doctrine against the word. That's the way to know if it's wrong. Correct. If it's wrong, take it to the board, the pastoral board. Right. And that's one of the reasons I answered the call to come here is because we'd have a pastoral board. I'm not a one-man show. If I get off the track, I've got ten other pastors who will speak truth into my life. That's, that's safety. Where you don't have safety is a local church set up where the pastor's a one-man show. Right? So be thankful for the other pastors of our church who are men of the word, men who um, respect me, but they don't see me as being incapable of being wrong. And if I am wrong in a doctrinal manner, they're going to be all over me. And if I don't repent of it and publicly correct it, I'm not getting into the pulpit the next Sunday. I know these men well enough. And that's right. That is absolutely right. So, young Pastor Titus has said, you reprove these guys that are legalists, that are Judaizers, you correct them because soundness of the faith is extremely important. I would say that when you read through the book of Titus, sound doctrine and the truth are the major themes of the book. Sound doctrine and the truth. We said last time that it's not a truth, but it has the, grammatically the article the. It is a defined body of truth. And what defines truth is not our experience. What defines truth is not our feelings. What defines truth is scripture, objective revelation from holy God in his scriptures. That's the truth. And I'm called to guard that for this congregation, but each of you are called to guard sound doctrine and the truth in your spheres of influence. You guys will influence people I will never get to influence. Okay? So we see this uh, sound in, in the faith in verse 13, but we also saw it in 1 verse 1. We saw it in 1 verse 9a. We saw it in 1 verse 9b. Now, one of the attacks on sound doctrine was that in verse 14, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. This is saying that Back then, there were Jewish myths, fables, that were brought into play as if they were the truth. And they weren't the truth because they weren't revealed in the Old Testament. It was somebody else's add-on idea. Similarly, they had come up with some commandments that weren't in the Old Testament. But, by the way, when you study the, the time of Jesus in the, on earth, the Pharisees had upped the Old Testament laws by 613 that they made their own. It's like playing Monopoly and the guy changes the rules. The Pharisees had added 613 commands to the law that God didn't put there. Interestingly enough, of those 613, 248 were 
positive, you must do this commandments, and 365 were, you must not do that negative commandments. I remember that because 365 add-on negatives, one for each day of the year. And these Judaizers were fixed on the outside. They were fixed on how people appeared. What was Jesus most interested in? The heart. When David was selected from family Jesse to be the second king of Israel, what was God most interested in? His heart. A man after God's own heart. So we need to be careful because it's not just Judaizers on Crete that can fall into the temptation that, well, if we just regulate the outer and we get people all looking in a certain way, then everybody's really okay. We really miss the point that God says it's the heart. Are you loving me with your heart? Are you devoted to me in your heart? Are you serving me in a ministry not because it's a duty, but because you love me and you believe I've called you to do that ministry? So, Pastor Titus had a few things to contend with. He lived on an island of liars, evil beasts, lazy guys, and gluttons. He had Judaizers in his church that were trying to add to the simple gospel at least 613 commandments, and he used to correct them. It says in verse 14, again, the truth. Not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. It's not up for grabs. It's the truth revealed in Scripture. And so, absolute truth exists. Nowadays, people will say, well, there's no such thing as absolute truth. Your truth is truth to you, my truth is truth to me, and never the twain may meet. But there is absolute truth. If I'm having to have a brain surgery, I want a neurosurgeon with absolute truth. If I'm flying to New York City, I want a pilot who has absolute truth about aeronautical law, physics. If I have an investment to make, a money investment to make, I want an investment holding company to have ethical boundaries on what they do with my money. I want absolute truth. Absolute truth has fallen on hard times, but you know it's ironic because the person who says there is no absolute truth, you want to smile and say, except about that. There is no absolute truth. Oh, except about that, right? That there is no absolute truth. Absolute about that? See the inconsistency? Never apologize for God's word. It's the truth. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer before the cross, prayed to his Father, Father, sanctify them by the, tr by the truth. Thy word is truth. So never make apology for God's word. Now in verse 15, if someone could read that in a big voice. Verse 15. Pure to those whose hearts are pure, but nothing is pure to those 
who are corrupt and unbelieving because their minds and consciences are defiled. Thank you. The, to the pure, all things are pure. By this, it means that when you have an inner purity, when you have an inside-out purity, then that produces a purity with your words, it produces a purity with your hands, it produces a purity with your feet. An inside-out purity is transformative for the rest of us. And so if we allow the Holy Spirit ministering the Word of God in accountability with the people of God to produce an inner purity inside of us, then the outer things will work their way out as pure. Maybe I could illustrate this way. If this is a calm body of water, and I have a big rock, and if I see the big rock as inner purity because of the Spirit of God making me a new creation in Christ, and I throw this inner purity rock into the still water, then it will ripple out. The inner purity will make a splash, but it will have aftermath positive effect as the ripples go out from the splash point. If we will have an inner purity that the Spirit of God has been given to us to produce, if we'll live in accordance with the Bible, and if we'll surround ourselves with others of like precious faith to hold us accountable, then we can know that the inner purity that Jesus gives us can be lived out on the externals of our lives. That's exciting to me. Now, on the flip side of that, in verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled... Nothing is pure. That is, if your inner life is impure, then the outer life can't really be pure. If I'm, if I'm in the service and the offering bag goes by and I am really not very pleased that my spouse pushed me to give what I'm putting in the offering bag, but I go ahead and put it in the offering bag without the right heart. The outer appearance looks good, but if I'm defiled on the inside about giving to the Lord and the ministries of our church, if I'm defiled on the inside, that even the giving on the outside is defiled. What's the inside? What specifically do we want Christ to make pure on the inside? Well, our minds, our consciences. Similarly, what we don't want to be defiled on the inside is our mind or our conscience. So maybe you could look at it this way, that if... If I have two jugs of ice water and there's a, a, a meal, church meal in this room and I'm going around to the tables to give refills on more ice water and somebody doesn't see me or I don't see them and we collide in the door of the kitchen, I'll guarantee you what is going to spill on the floor is water and not ginger ale. Because that water was in my two pitchers Similarly, if life jostles you, the bank charges you a fee that you didn't expect, or someone breaks a promise to you, that's a jostle. And what's going to come out of you when you're jostled is what's in you. If something like that happens and love, joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control comes out, then you are filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit. But if dissension, backbiting, criticism, anger, and the light comes out, then at that moment, you are in the flesh. Okay. Just while I think of it, I'll, I want to circulate this. If your name is on here, just you don't have a need to do anything. But if your name is not on here, would you kindly write your name, please? Um, all right, so now moving on to verse 16. Would someone read 16? They claim to know God, but their actions they deny Him. They are detestable, Thank you, Karen. So they're, they're saying that they uh, claim something. These false teachers, these Judaizers, they claim certain things about knowing God, but their deeds give away that they don't. In fact, they're detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. You know what they say is that uh, a life is a better sermon than words. A life is a better sermon than words, right? And so we, you all work where I will never work. You all, in most cases, live where I will never live. You all have friends that in most cases I will never have as friends. You have opportunities afforded you just by who you are and what your networks of influence are. And so one thing we have to bear in mind is that for the person who's unchurched, the person who's been hurt by a church and wants no part of a church, the person who uh, does not yet know Christ as Savior, you and I are the only Bible they're reading. You and I are the only Bible that they're reading. And so we need to allow the Spirit of God to line us up with this book. And when we don't line up, and that's happened to me when I worked in, in secular jobs before I went into pastoring, when my life didn't line up with Scripture and I knew my co-workers were reading me like the only Bible they had, I went to them and I told them why, how my life didn't line up with something in Scripture the other day when I was with them. And I've asked God to forgive me. Could you please forgive me for having my life not line up with the Bible? And most people don't know what to do with that. It's, they never think they hear a Christian say that. But what I found is that when I have done that and humbled myself before God and before people, is there's a potency to the testimony that was not there before. Because we are acknowledging that we are cut out of the same fabric as they are as a non-Christian. And we need the... Uh, power of God to live otherwise. So, 2-1. Someone read 2-1. Here we go again. Another reference to wholesome teaching, sound doctrine, the truth. This book is saturated with the priority of those things. And, um, 
There's a couple, several reasons why that is. Um, he's being called to sound doctrine as a young pastor in a rough place because sound doctrine slips. It tends to slip. Sound doctrine tends to drift. Sound doctrine uh, oftentimes is inconvenient. <laughs> Pastor Frederick and Sister Helen in their uh, fantastic Bible counseling ministry at the Christian Counseling Center right across the parking lot. <coughs> I'm sure over the years, there's close to 30 years, <coughs> many times, it has been a completely inconvenient to share with a client what the Bible says about something that's a really tough thing. But they're people of integrity, and they answer to a higher authority than their client. But Pastor Titus is being called to hold on to sound doctrine, to hold on to the truth, to correct error, because sound doctrine is slippery. Not the way it's revealed in God's Word, it's not slippery, but the way we interact with it, it's slippery. We fumble it. It drifts. Not in how God's presented it in His Word, it doesn't drift, but how we take it in, how we live it, how we give it out to others. We can just have this little slow drift. Or, it's inconvenient, as I was giving an example. And sound doctrine and truth is costly. It's costly. It's literally costly. If we have to make restitution for sin against someone else's property, it costs money. It's costly with respect to relationships. I may have told you that I had a funeral in my family, and I was asked to do the funeral, and it was by marriage. The deceased was related to us by marriage, and I said I would do the funeral, and the night before the funeral, all the family came in from points in the North America to Toronto, and they phoned me up and said, what are you going to share in this funeral? Are you going to share the gospel? I said, yes, I plan to share the gospel. Well, my family wants you to know that if you share the gospel, you can't do the funeral. Okay, I always give the gospel, so I understand. Now, I went to the funeral, it's only right, to respect the deceased. They didn't get the gospel. They got nothing close to the gospel. Sometimes it's costly to hold to sound doctrine, but it's a price we must be willing to pay. Verse 2, 2 verse 2. Teach the older man to be tempted, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and in endurance. Thank you. So it's addressed to the older men. I like that. It's not the old men. It's the older men. And when I did a little research on this, uh, made me feel slightly okay that this was probably 60 years old and older. So I'm chasing it down. I'm not quite there. But the older men in an assembly, the older men in the church at Crete, the older men in this church that was on an island full of liars, gluttons, uh, lazy, evil beasts, <laughs> they are called to be what? They're called to be rather than to do, right? They're called to be what? Again? Popcorn style. So, 
They're called to be these things. Um, you know what that must mean? That must mean that whatever is the opposite of these things is what an older man is prone to be in his flesh. And so, uh, for us guys, the opposite of being temperate is to be not clear-headed. The opposite of being dignified, guys, is to not be honorable or respectable. What kind of jokes do we tell? The opposite of being sensible is lacking self-control and being impetuous. The opposite of being sound in faith is being wrong in doctrine. The opposite of living in faith is living in self-effort, which leads to pride. The opposite of being in love is selfishly being unprepared to sacrifice. Because agape love, God's love, the highest love, is discerning the greatest need in the one who is loved and then sacrificing to meet that need without concern for the cost or the payback. That's God's love for you as it's described in John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so older guys, those of us who aren't yet 60, those of us who are over 60, whatever the case might be, we are called in this assembly in Nassau, we are called to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and in perseverance. That's the other one I didn't get to. The opposite of perseverance, guys, is prone to quit. Prone to quit. All right. Isn't it interesting that God the Holy Spirit starts with the older men and not the older women? Do you know why that is? Because God has made the fairer sex to respond to godly leadership. God starts with the men so that we will come under the Lordship of Christ, controlled by the Holy Spirit, to be servant-lover leaders of the women in our lives so that you can respond in a way that will work for the way God has made you. So now we move over to verse 3, because after addressing the older men, the Spirit of God addresses the older women. And again, it would seem that these are women 60 and over. And... Um, I guess what I'd like to point out for both men and women is um, you're useful in the cause of Christ longer than maybe some people give you credit for. And there's really no evidence in the Scriptures, Old or the New Testament, of retirement as a concept. You know, stopping your job and just fish or shop, or, you know, whatever the case might be. There's nothing like that in the Scriptures. So when we get to be an age that perhaps we don't work outside of our home at a job we used to work at, we have more time to minister 
in a local church like this or on a mission field because there's no such thing as, as retirement. And so the fact that, that men over 60 are being addressed here and women over 60 are being addressed ought to underscore that for us. One of my seminary profs said, you know the problem in some evangelical churches is that they're rounding third and they're sliding for home. Just, I'm going to die comfortably. He was saying, you've got to run it out. You've got to run through home plate. If God gives you life and breath and soundness of mind, then serve Christ to the very end. Best dad is 88 years old, preaches every Sunday morning in Anniston, Alabama, and he has gone on record for years that he wants to go to heaven preaching. And I believe he'll get that. I do. He's asked God for that for a long time. And I believe that he'll have that. That's my opinion. All right. Um, so, women, older women, verses 3 through 5. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips or enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. So just like I did an opposite study for the older men, let's do an opposite study for the older women. The opposite of reverence is irreverence. The opposite of not malicious gossips is being a mean-spirited gossip. And then there's something very unique here. It talks about them not being enslaved to much wine. It would seem that on the island of Crete, the women over 60 had a drinking problem that linked into a talking problem. They got loose tongues because they had too much alcohol. And that's, uh, that's something that's easy for anybody who has too much alcohol to get a loose tongue. But these sisters in Christ were drinking to the point of the alcohol controlling them, and they were saying things they shouldn't have said. They were maliciously gossiping against people in the assembly that Titus was pastoring. And so the opposite of not being enslaved to much wine is being enslaved to it. Apparently they were. The opposite of teaching what is good is schooling in what is useless, senseless, and unchecked. <laughs> Opposite of encouraging the younger women to love their husbands and children and teach them to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, is failing to do that encouragement. And that failure could either have been by teaching contrary or by just being silent. And we need to bear in mind whether we're an older woman or an older man or a younger woman or a younger man that teaching most often is more by example than by words. More is caught than taught. Personal example is a very powerful teacher. If you look at verse 7 of chapter 2, in all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity in doctrine, dignified, and so on. Why do you think that it's a more potent uh, teaching mode to be an example than to be a talker? (laughs) 
behaviors and the, it stays with them. But uh, talking, we can all talk, but it's your action that it stays with the person that's observing. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, Ampu said it's actions are more lasting. Our, our actions are more indelible upon a person's memory than our, our words. And maybe you didn't say, but you could be added that talk is cheap. You know, talk is, is cheap, but living it is costly and, and takes exertion and prayer. Um, the mouth can say anything. Yeah, that's a Bahamian term. Uh, can I add a Canadian second part? The mouth can say anything, and the Canadian part is, and it usually does. <laughs> that's true. James talked about how impossible it is to tame our tongue, and it takes the indwelling Holy Spirit to control our speech. Only He can do that. <laughs> yeah, a rudder that turns the ship. <clears throat> That's right. All right. Now, I want to spend a little time on verse 5 that um, older women, three, are likewise to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. Uh, why? That they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. Um, I think that I need to unpack that a little bit. The Greek word for being subject or being submissive is hupotasso. Hupotasso, it's a compound verb. Hupo means under, tasso means to stand. It's a military term. Um, hupotasso, to stand under. And so the married woman in scripture is called to stand under her husband, not because she's inferior, not because she should check her brains at the door, not because she should not be consulted in decisions that need to be made, but the idea is that the husband is going to be held accountable for the decisions of the home. So we have a decision to make. I confer with my wife Beth, we pray about it, we seek the counsel of others, perhaps. We look at God's word. And then it's time to make a decision. And then I step up to the plate and make the decision. So it's not, Beth's not been isolated from the decision, but I'm responsible for making the decision and that when the decision is called to account by God, I will be the one answering for it, not Beth. You could almost see that God means for a married woman to stand under her husband, almost like he's an umbrella. He's an umbrella of protection and love. And that's God's intent. Um, so these women are, in Titus 2, are called to be subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. In my experience as a pastor, one of the ways that God's word is dishonored if uh, a lady doesn't choose to stand under her husband is that there's almost a, uh, a rivalry, there's almost uh, unsettledness, 
there's almost a lack of peace, there's almost a competitiveness, and there's almost um, a disorder in that marriage or in that family. And so when someone looking at that marriage, according to Ephesians 5, the husband mysteriously is to portray Christ's uh, love for the church. And the wife mysteriously is to portray the church's respect for Christ. And so when someone looks in on a Christian marriage where uh, this is not the case, they are given reason to question the whole idea that um, the church loves Christ and that Christ loves the church. And really, marriage is so important because... It's the only miniature object lesson that God has left on earth to be an illustration of Christ's relationship with the church. And so that's why I think Satan attacks marriages as much as he does, because Satan knows the Bible. He understands that. And uh, he wants our marriages to be chaotic and competitive and uh, disordered and uh, such. So again, not just in Ephesians 5 where this is taught, but here again in Titus 2, uh, our sisters in Christ are given a, a blueprint on, on how to interact with the husband that God has given to them. Verse 5, still in verse 5, to be sensible, pure workers at home, um, kind being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be uh, dishonored. Um, when I talk to... Uh, a lady, I always ask, do you work outside your home? Because I know every lady works inside her home, <laughs> you know, hard. And many women work outside the home as well as inside the home, and I, I respect that. Um, but the principle I'd like to share with you is that when a sister in Christ who is married applies herself to stand under her husband in with dignity and with skill, then that can create a, a godly home of excellence and stability and peace for both she and her husband as well as for their children. And for those of you who maybe stay-at-home wives, I want to encourage you in 1 Samuel uh, 30. 1 Samuel 30. 1 Samuel 30. Verse 24, the scene here is that David has taken an army to battle and not everyone has gone to battle with the soldiers. Some have stayed behind and they have won the battle and the booty or the, the uh, prizes of war, won in war, are to be divided. And the question became, what about the guys who stayed back with the bags at the house while we went and fought the battle on the field? How should the booty be divided between us? And 24 is a great truth. And who will listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down to the battle, so shall his share be to, uh, who, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. So in our ministry, uh, my ministry with my wife Beth, when she was at home when our children were young, and I would go preach a sermon or teach a Bible study or counsel someone with a marriage problem or what have you, when she stayed home and gave a safe, nurturing, 
uh, place for Joanna and JD, my reward in serving Christ those evenings is equal to her reward. Because I couldn't have done those evenings what God called me to do, except she did those evenings what God told her to do. And so I just encourage you to realize that you're a team. If you're married, you're a team. And uh, uh, not to look down on one or the other, but you're a team. You're different. Viva la difference between men and women. Um, if we were all the same, we'd be doing this all the time. When we got premarital counseling in Dallas, we did a, a personality inventory, and the pastor says, I believe that you're the most different pair I've ever given this instrument of evaluation to. And I'm thinking, oh, great. And then he said, but that's good, because when you have um, differences under the lordship of Christ, then you can have some of the strongest uh, complementary service to the Lord that anybody could possibly have. So you aren't identical to your mate if you're married, and you're not supposed to be. You have different spiritual gifts, you have different backgrounds, you have different um, strengths, different weaknesses, and uh, celebrate that. And remember that God, when there's reward, God's going to reward the team, not just maybe the person who is up front in, in the ministry. All right. Um, now, he loops back in verse 6 to the young men. He talks the older guys, 60 and over, now the older women, 60 and over, and then he doubles back to the younger guys in verse 6. And uh, would someone read that for us? Prudently, my version says sensibly, self-controlled, wisely, sober-minded. Uh, yeah, those are all highly essential. Uh, as somebody told me when I was in my 40s, you're just half-baked yet. <laughs> and when you're half-baked, you're prone to making mistakes, right, quickly. So um, wise is the young man under 60 who has an older man in the fellowship or the assembly come up and say, you know, did you think about this when you said that? And he goes, thanks, never thought of it. Versus, what's that to you? Said to you. Um, all right. Now let's go on uh, seven to eight. Someone read both. Thank you, Vanjie. Um, basically, the younger men are being urged by this, these verses to be sensible, to in all things show themselves an example of good deeds. Uh, so a, a hypocrite young Christian man uh, is bad news because people are already observing him very closely. But rather, to show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, there it is again, purity and doctrine, sound doctrine, the truth, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, in order that the opponent may be put to shame, 
having nothing bad to say about us. Do you know what that pictures for me? That the opponent is mentioned there sort of as a given? Is that around this church building, there are those of a spirit, those of a bent, those of a propensity that would just love to fire darts through this testimony. They don't want this testimony to shine bright with integrity for Christ for their own reasons. And so they are our opponents. And these verses are saying to the young men of an assembly, you live in an exemplary way above reproach in your good deeds and in your mouths so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Another way of saying it is don't put gasoline on his fire. His fire is already burning against the gospel. Don't pour any gasoline on his fire. Be careful. Um, verse 9. Change the way to be subject to their masters in everything. To try to please them, not to talk back to them. Um, these are our bond slaves, Duloy, uh, and they are to stand under their masters in everything to be well-pleasing and not argumentative. Um, the danger in the model of Jesus being the master, the Lord, and us being his bond servants is that we, believe it or not, can uh, become argumentative with him. Imagine me made out of clay, a crock pot, dead in sin before salvation, redeemed, regenerated, made new, that I would become argumentative with my Lord and Savior. But I think if we're honest, it's quite easy. If you picture it this way, if on this hand I write no, and on this hand I write Lord, these two cannot coexist together. You cannot say no, Lord. If he's Lord, then you get rid of the no, and you say Lord. If he's not Lord, then get rid of the Lord. Don't play games. Get rid of the Lord and just say no, all you want. But you can't have both. This is saying that there are opponents to the gospel, opponents to Jesus Christ and his cross, that want to say bad about us. So, we who are bond slaves, we better stand under our masters in everything to be well-pleasing and not argumentative. So if your boss at work isn't asking you to do something illegal or unethical, then do it. If he's asking you to do or she's asking you to do something illegal or unethical, don't you dare do it. Obey God rather than men, right? I told you from the pulpit, I'm pretty sure, but I had a friend in Dallas when I was in seminary, and uh, he was in the business world. He was uh, um, 
what shall we say, a headhunter in the business world. He found uh, employment for high-salaried executives in different uh, parts of the corporate world. And he said to me, he said, do you know the biggest problem that we have in the corporate world is that the Christians are the worst employees. They are late. They take too much vacation. They don't do their jobs properly. They take too long of a lunch. He said, what's with that? I said, that's terrible. <laughs> that's terrible. So if we are going to keep that opponent who is lingering, wanting to slam what we believe and what we teach away and keep him quiet, then we had better live under the Lordship of Christ. We had better get rid of the no and stay with the Lord, and we had better let Christ's Lordship affect our punctuality, our productivity, our honesty, uh, all down the line. And remember... Paul called himself a bond slave in verse 1 of chapter 1. Paul, a bond servant of God. So I think it's pretty important that Paul didn't call his readers to bond slavery, except he said up front, I am a bond slave. I can never call you as the flock to a level of maturity or, or um, obedience that I have not yet arrived at. So I have, I have a responsibility to grow as a Christian. I have a responsibility to be authentic. I have a responsibility to practice what I preach. Paul said, I'm a bond servant in verse 1 of chapter 1. And then he says, he dresses the bond servants in verse 9 because he has a business doing that because he's not calling them to anything he hasn't answered by way of a call for himself. It's getting warm in here? Good. I thought I was wilting. It's getting warm. Thank you. <laughs> you hear me. All right. Um, we're almost going to wrap up here. Um, now, these bond slaves are to be subject to their masters in everything, to be well-pleasing and not argumentative. And then what does verse 10 say? Not stealing, but showing all good faith that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. See, you know, don't be stealing from your, your boss. Be honest and show all good faith. Be loyal. Your employer should not have to wonder for one minute if you're loyal to him or her. You should be loyal. In fact, if, they, if somebody tries to do you in at your workplace and say, do you know what she said about you behind your back? Your life should be so consistent and so Christ-like that your boss would say, I don't believe she'd say anything behind my back that wasn't nice. But that's, that reputation is one with consistency over time. All right. Uh, and then it says... That if bond slaves will be subject in everything, will be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, then what happens?
Yes. Adorn the doctrine of God. Think of that. This book is about sound doctrine, the truth, um, sound doctrine, sound speech. It's about all the things that are sound, and it says that it can be adorned. Just think, the truth, as beautiful as it is in and of itself, can be adorned. For ladies, you love to adorn your beauty, and we appreciate it. And um, when you go for a job interview, I imagine you take care with what you're wearing. You take care maybe with your jewelry, and that's good. You're adorning the person that God's made you to be. You have an inner beauty, but you're looking after the outer appearance too, and that's good. Guys, when we go for a job interview, our nails are clean, I hope. Our shoes are polished, right? I hope. So we are adorning, we're putting a little uh, shine on the apple to make it look as good as it can look. And so when we live this way, we are adorning the doctrine of God. That's, that is amazing. That when we choose to live certain ways that we can dress up the doctrine of God so that it's beautiful or handsome. Amazing. All right, and the doctrine of our God is another example. So far, if you're taking notes or you see it in your outlines, the following places have referenced either sound doctrine or the truth. 1 verse 1, 1 verse 9, 1 verse 14, 2 verse 1, 2 verse 3, and 2 verse 5, and now 2 verse 10. I think the Spirit of God wanted Pastor Titus to keep the main thing, the main thing. Very quickly, some takeaways, because the Word of God is never to just make us smarter, it's to make us different. First, cultivate and grow inner purity. Pay attention to your mind and your heart. I have a little patch of dirt in the back of the parsonage yard. It's close to the house. And, um, man, it, it grows weeds. Just like falling off a log, it grows weeds, right? So um, it's important that those things get pulled out by the roots regularly. And so it is with our minds. They grow weed thoughts. Our hearts grow weed emotions. So we have to, when the Holy Spirit says, hey, Rob, that's a weed. Okay, I confess that attitude is sin, Lord. Thank you, thank you that Jesus died for it. Hey, Rob, that's a weed thought. Yes, Holy Spirit, take away my weed thought, and I confess it is sin. I accept your forgiveness for that thought. And the thing about my, my patch in the backyard that the degree to which I'm faithful and regular and persistent about weeding it, to that extent, I don't have as big a problem. But if I let it go, it gets ahead of me. If you let your thoughts go, they get ahead of you. As a man thinks in his heart, so he is, Proverbs 27. So we have to be on top of it and ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, show me, is there any weed thought in my mind? And if you're convicted, then admit it. Lord, 
Is there any weed uh, emotion or ambition or motivation in my heart? Wait on the Lord. If he shows you, confess it. And do that regularly. Do that very regularly. The next thing I want us to take away is uh, to toss the man-made. Um, the Judaizers said you got to keep the Jewish law, got to uh, pay attention to these Jewish fables and myths, as well as what Pastor Titus is teaching you. And they basically needed to say, look at the Bible. What does the Bible say? And I mean, that time was not the only time that people had man-made theology or man-made doctrine or man-made religion. It's all over the place. When someone tells you something that's man-made or anything, say, what's the scripture on that? Where do I find that in the Bible? Basically, if they can't show you, then don't give it any heed. What's the scripture on that? Okay, here's a good one. Accept that you are a teacher. Every one of you is a teacher. Because somebody's watching you. Somebody's listening to you. Somebody's taking their cue from you. You may not even know it. The pictures that I get drawn by little children in this congregation of me are just priceless. And what they draw are things they see me doing that I never even think are important. But it's precious to me. And it's a reminder that I am being watched always. But guess what? So are you. It's not just me. And you're a teacher. And a definition of a teacher in the Hebrew mind was anyone who causes anybody else to learn. So if anybody is being caused to learn by you, then you're a teacher. Accept it. Accept it. And this passage has certainly said that men over 60 are and women over 60 are, but it's not just when we reach the age of 60. So the second last thing, or third last thing I want to give as a takeaway is guard your character. Guard your mouth. Um, there was a wealthy lady who wanted to hire a chauffeur, and she had a brick wall at her mansion, a curving brick wall. And she put an ad in the paper, and the first driver came out, and she had this beautiful new Cadillac limousine, and she said, if you were my chauffeur, how close could you drive to this wall and not scrape my car? And he said, well, ma'am, I, I think I could get within two feet. She said, thanks anyway, thanks for coming out. So the second guy comes along, she asks the same question, he goes, ma'am, if I was your driver, I could get within one foot of that wall, and I'm sure I wouldn't scratch your Cadillac limo. She said, thanks anyway, no thanks. The third guy comes, he says, ma'am, I really don't know, but if I'm your chauffeur, I'm going to keep your brand new Cadillac limo as far away from that wall as I possibly can. So to guard our character, we want to stay as far away from stuff that hurts the cause of Christ and not to get, oh, I'm okay up here, right there, I'm good. No, why get as close as we can? Let's step, let's step back for the glory of God. And if my grandfather, he had a lot of faults. He loved the Lord, but he had a lot of faults like I do. He said, grandson, if you can't improve on silence, then don't say anything. <laughs> he lived that way. He lived that way. If you can't improve on silence, then don't say anything. If you have a doubt about saying something, don't say it. 
If you couldn't say what you're thinking of saying to the person's face, but only behind their back, don't say it. All right. I talked about no such thing as retirement in the work of God. Uh, don't hide behind your age. Don't hide behind your age. Can you still pray when you're really old? Can you still pray? Of course. Can you still encourage people when you're older? Yes, a lady in our last church, she wrote thank you cards to, I don't know how many people a week, handwritten thank you and encouragement cards from her home. She didn't retire. She didn't hide behind her age. There was a wonderful woman at VBS this year who's 84 years old. <laughs> Let's give her a hand. Mrs. Pender's not hiding behind her age, and uh, we're, we're the better for it. Um, last takeaway, it's not on your sheet. Um, we've heard the theme of absolute sound doctrine, biblical sound doctrine, biblical truth. I want you to treat that as your most expensive piece of jewelry. If you have a wedding diamond wedding ring, treat sound doctrine like you do your wedding ring. If you have a family heirloom, maybe a pocket watch like I have from my great-grandfather, it was given to him for never smoking. There's a certain way I t treat that pocket watch. We want to treat sound doctrine like the most expensive asset we have. Maybe it's your home. If you own a home, you're not going to let it run down and lose its value. Treat sound doctrine like you do your most expensive and worthy, valuable. Guard it. Monitor it. Know it. Any questions, comments? Yes, Marguerite. What you said when you said the word of God doesn't make us smarter, it makes us more like Jesus. The word of God doesn't merely make us smarter, it makes us more like Christ. Mm -hmm. In an interview um, um, with uh, former President uh, Jimmy Carter this week, a secular. Um, um, Reporter um, talking about his 90 years, he was just turned 90. And he had been teaching Sunday school for uh, 50 plus years. Um, and he said to him, uh, the reporter asked him, um, What do you think about um, gay marriage? Um, so he said, I don't have a problem with it. Um, <clears throat> um, and the reporter was like shocked. He said, as long as two people love um, each other, it's fine by me. And I said to Melissa, uh, uh, I showed her the interview, 
And I said, which Bible has he been teaching for 50 years? Yes. You know, this, this really disturbs me. Yes. No end. Yes. People compromise the word. Yes. And so much of that is being, being done today. Um, um, this man was president of the United States. Um, in my view, a terrible president. Yes. But um, uh, he was, um, uh, and I'm judging. Yes. Um, I shouldn't be judging. But I mean, just to, um, I, I thought that was just hideous. Yes. I don't know if you heard, uh, former U.S. President Jimmy Carter, turning 90, was being interviewed and uh, asked about gay marriage and he felt there was no tr he had no trouble with it uh, if two people love each other. Well, the first thing that's real problem with that answer is what I think about it is nothing. It's what God has revealed about it in his word. That's right. And uh, um, but that's we're in the last times, we're in the end times when uh, people will um, depart from what they know to be the truth and uh, accept a lie. And uh, I'm pretty sure that same interview, he said that God favored some abortions too, didn't he? Uh, he had a problem with abortions, but he didn't have a problem with gay marriage. Okay, he, he did not think God endorsed abortion. He had a problem with, uh, with abortions. <clears throat> but he said because he was uh, president, he had to respect the uh, uh, what the Supreme Court had, uh, the activists, uh, uh, judges, had determined was the law. Well, there's one judge of the universe, and it's not a Supreme Court judge. It's the living God. And uh, God has told us what is right and wrong in his word, and he hasn't stuttered. He's very plain. And... Um, if we are going to tie in with the whole theme of Titus and to stand for truth, to perpetuate sound doctrine, to have soundness of speech, then this is, this is our guide. Nothing else. No political poll, no a political party, no a pre a legal precedent. Um, nothing except the scriptures. And we're going to be ridiculed. We are going to be ridiculed. When uh, push comes to shove, if we aren't already being ridiculed in the Bahamas, we will be. But where else do we turn? God's given us his truth, right? We're not turning anywhere else. Without apology, with love, with humility, but without apology. So... Um, you know, it's, it's really encouraging here. I don't know how many of us are here tonight, 60, 65 people on a Wednesday night. You know, it's great that you are wanting to understand God's Word and you're giving attention to God's Word. And I'm, I'm just so thankful as your pastor. I'm thankful to God for that appetite you have in your lives for His Word. Um, so thank you again for coming out tonight. And um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Did the sheet go around to, to add your name to it? Okay. 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 If your name isn't here, if you could kindly add it, I'd appreciate it. So, uh, God willing, we'll meet again next Wednesday night at 6.30, and we'll um, go further in to Titus. If you want to hear the recording of tonight or the recording of last week, 
You can go on the webpage and uh, they'll be there for you as audio recordings. Last week's is up now, and this week may take a little while to get up. But All right? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're the God of truth, and everything that you breathe into Scripture is truth. And we thank you, Lord, that our Savior is the way, the truth, and the life. We thank you that we have the Spirit of God within us as we're born again to live the truth, speak the truth, and share the truth. I ask that you bless each person in the uh, auditorium now with a safe trip home. I pray that you'd help us to ponder what you've taught us tonight and that we would be joyful in knowing you and making you known. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.